Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. My first cookbook really needed to lay down the fundamentals. And it's like, it wasn't a moment to go balls to the wall. It was a moment to really learn how to cook and really learn some good technique, how to chop an onion and how to sear a steak. The second book opened up this opportunity to teach people how to cook a little bit more loosely. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. We've long been fans of cookbook author and creative thinker Molly Boz, and many of you have too. With a signature voice and absolute wild recipe development skills, as well as years of professional cooking under her belt, Molly has won over millions of fans worldwide. Her debut book, Cook This Book, was a New York Times bestseller, and she's back with a really great new one, More Is More, that taps into the food world's more maximalist urges. This is a really fun talk with one of the strongest voices in cookbooks, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Molly Boz, what's up? Welcome to This Is Taste. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm well. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in the studio. Your book is out tomorrow. Mm, yes, it is. I love, the, I love the book, and we're going to say many things about the book. More is more. What an accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. Tell me first, you're back in New York. You lived here for many years. Yeah. Um, where do you go first? Restaurants. Like, there's got to be some old haunts, some spots. Yeah. Well, I'm staying in Manhattan, um, and I, when I lived here, lived in Brooklyn. So I'm like— it's weird, right? Yeah, I'm a little far away from the usual haunts. If I have time, always, I go back to Bernie's in Greenpoint. Yeah. I used to live in an apartment on top of Bernie's, which I chose strategically because of its proximity to Bernie's. Because oh, like, no my husband and I were just always like, our dream was to have like a neighborhood vibe restaurant. Yeah. And that was the spitting image of it. And so we found an apartment right above it. That's so, good. Um, that's always a go-to um, if I have time. But right now I'm in the Lower East Side. So I'm kind of in that like dime square circuit. Maybe pop into Cervos. Sounds like a good uh, pick. I feel Servos is always good. So back to Greenpoint. Do you ever go to A Bar? Do you ever drink, have a drink or two? Where is is that on Manhattan? Yeah, it's on Manhattan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the dive. Yeah, totally. That place is rad. The place is rad. Um, It's been a minute. Bernie's is like blown up in the past couple of years, it seems like. Yeah. I feel like it's like a whole thing. Um, I hope to get back to it, but yeah. I love that you're selling maximalism um, for the home cook. I cannot agree with this more. I feel like you've, you've really tapped into something that I enjoy personally, and we cover a lot on taste. Yeah. I feel like it's like the anti-figs on a plate mentality. Yeah. I don't know if you know what I mean with that. Yeah. Figs on a plate thing. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, and there's a time and a place for something like that, but I feel like, I guess, my whole sort of philosophy here is that there's so much to learn in adopting a mentality like this of like taking things to the edge and really learning the limitations of cooking, whether it be a technique or an ingredient, the ways to use it. Um, 
and that there's so much to explore by adopting this mentality of like more flavor, more texture, like what are all the ways that I can transform something and get it onto the plate? And that's really valuable in then allowing you as a cook to like really pull back at some point. So who knows, maybe my next book is like, Less is more. Okay, well, I f- figured there would be <laughs> Spoiler alert. Like, yeah, spoiler alert. Are we, are we talking like like t- two years from now you're doing that book? Yeah. But why now for more is more? I mean, this maximalist approach certainly it feels like a response to millennial pink and like m- minimalism and, and kind of like muted attitudes. And your book is certainly not that. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I think, been this girl, actually. And... You've seen like my color story has always been like the primaries and very bold and the fonts I've used even back to cook this book have been like very sort of distinct and have this very bold um, personality to them. And I think that's been my food forever. And the reason that it took a few years to get to this book is that I felt like cook this book or my first cookbook really needed to lay down the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it wasn't a moment to go balls to the wall. Mm -hmm. It was a moment to really learn how to cook and really learn some good technique, how to chop an onion and how to sear a steak and how to season. And then you can start to loosen up. And so it felt like it was really like the second book opened up this opportunity to teach people how to cook a little bit more loosely. Well said. Why does everything taste better with a sauce? You write this in a couple parts in the book, plot spots in the book, and I just love that mentality. I mean, if you think about it, everything does have a sauce and it's just yeah. like hiding in some form. So if you think about like, I always liken it to like cereal without milk. That's like, that's food without a sauce. Yeah, right. It's dry as fuck and yeah. it gets stuck in your mouth. Or like a salad without dressing. That's food without a sauce. Yeah. Um, Two very, very, very poor experiences, I would agree. Exactly. And so, you know, a piece of meat without a sauce is not dissimilar from that. And I think it's like it's about lubrication, um, for lack of a better word, sex without lube. Yeah. I mean, seriously. You know, that's food without a sauce. Listen, poll quote there of the century. <laughs> Dylan and Molly Bath. Appreciate the, the, the metaphors. Yeah. There's flying today. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like I can leave now. You, you, <laughs> you got like, what you needed. No, no. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. We, um, I totally agree with it, though. And it well said because I think you need, um, use the word zhuzh, use the word extra. There's just like something with cooking that we can't always accomplish. And sh- restaurant chefs like yourself can. Yeah. It's the je ne sais quoi, and I think that's what I hope the takeaway and the learning is from this book, is like how to get it to that place. Let's talk about the great sizzled seedy moments, speaking of <laughs> the previous yeah. statement. I feel I feel like that was really fun that you like grizz, sizzled and seedy is like a theme here. Yeah, you're so right. You know what? Someone, I think I wrote about this at one point in the book that someone, I think it was on set when I was shooting the book, was like, you should have called this sizzled, seedy, what did they say? Sizzled, seedy, salty, sizzled, and seedy or yeah. something yeah, like that. Yeah, you wrote that. That, that, would been, note. Yeah. that would have been a great title for this book. And I was like, I mean, not no. Um, a close second. I think it's kind of another representation of the philosophy of like, Texture is such an important part of food, and I think it's something that people don't really think about or it's an afterthought. Everyone's thinking about, like, flavor, flavor, but texture enhances flavor and so plays into the experience of eating. And so a sizzled, seedy moment is, like, a textural <laughs> moment that yeah. everyone loves. Like, n- nobody's mad about a little crunchy, sizzle, seedy pop. Definitely not. I mean, that's why salsa matcha and, and chili crisp are so popular. What's a recipe from the book that Precisely. uses this idea of seedy and, and seedy? 
So the sizzled seedy tomato salad, yeah, for one, right. is an obvious one. The flakiest fish with shingled potatoes has this, like, crunchy walnut gremolata on top. I'm literally just cruising through here looking at them. Yeah. Um, the crispy salmon with coconut rice and crackle sauce. The crackle sauce is, like, sizzled peanuts and sesame seeds and spices in um, turmeric yeah. and ginger. So good. You can put that on anything. The skirt steak with juicy tomatoes and salsa matcha. All of these recipes have some kind of crunchy, spicy, zingy, sizzled out, bloomed condiment. Really thoughts. smart. Your recipe development is super on point. I mean, zooming out, where, where do you get these ideas? And, and I don't mean like where, like spiritually, but like, <laughs> let me ask you, these Maybe. are complex ideas. These are big ideas. They're not, it's not like simple cooking in mm -hmm. many ways, mm -hmm. though you've made it simple in the direction. How do you develop your recipes? How does that, how does that shit work? Um, it works like this. My whole experience in the world is eating. Like I filter everything through like what's the next meal? What am I going to eat? And I spend so much time thinking about food, like disgusting amounts. Um, and so every eating experience that I've ever had, whether it be like the humblest, most seemingly forgettable bacon, egg and cheese um, on the way to the bus stop or you know, some like mm -hmm. incredible meal that I've had in Paris in my travels is like being filed away, I think somewhere, maybe not totally consciously. Like, it's not like I'm like, oh, yes, pull up that file. <laughs> but like, you probably have some like notes in your I definitely your phone. have some crazy wacky notes yeah. on my phone that go miles long of just like sound bites, basically, yeah. of like just little things that I've picked up or some, I'll eat something and I'm not, it's not like I'll write down the full recipe or the full concept of whatever the dish was that I've eaten, but it's like a little thing like, um, I don't know fried sage and creme fraiche like or like soy sauce and creme fraiche whoa yo, and it's like yo just, I'm, I'm pausing on that one yeah nice. soy and creme fraiche nobody steal my idea I have like some recipes <laughs> wait this is not in the book it's not in the book this but is for I less recently, is more yeah I recently put that down as like I'm figuring I'm working through it's percolating yeah. some kind of a recipe that's like laid on a bed of soy creme fraiche um, mm. and that, I pulled from somewhere I don't even know where anymore but like that's kind of my lived experience in the world is just like keeping tabs on all the delicious things I've eaten and then repurposing them some way down the line in some newfangled manner. Right, right. And taking your your deep your deep experience in food. And I'm going to link to our previous episode in the show notes. We get into a lot of your history. I'm not going to go over that again. Yeah, but you've been great, there, done that. Been there, done that. But you have a great history of cooking in restaurants for years and years and years, not just your BA time. Yeah. Previously to that. Yeah. Definitely check into that episode. One more like story about maximalism with using this maximalist approach, you there's great responsibility, right? You have to know when to say when, right? Yeah. There's um so there's a whole section here or like a spread at the beginning of the book that's like the rules of more is more. And in some ways that sounds antithetical <laughs> to the idea of more is more, which is like all about rule breaking um and just loosening up. But it's sort of like if you don't know what your guardrails are, um things can kind of go awry. Yeah. And you need to know the rules in order to break them. Um, oh, yeah, totally. Makes sense. Yeah. And so one of the rules is when less is more. And in some ways, to me, that's still a really more is more um, mentality because I'll give an example. There's a recipe in the book f called Olive Oil Drowned Potatoes with Lemony Onions and Herbs. And there's maybe five ingredients in that recipe. Mm -hmm. So fewer ingredients, a lot of restraint in the choice on what those ingredients are. But there's a lot of all of those ingredients. Yeah. Like that, those potatoes, they are boiled and they are swimming in oil. Like yeah. they are drenched, so you're drowned. in a way. Yeah. yeah. And then there's like piles and piles of herbs and like bunches of herbs. So it's like, it's a, 
it's a minimalism around maximalism. And there's a less is more approach to more is more sort of baked into the philosophy here. So I want to like warn that this book is not just like there's 500 ingredients yeah. in every recipe and like more butter, more Some fat, bros more have done salt. that probably back in like yeah, 2006. Yeah, this isn't stoner food. <laughs> totally. No, it's really elegant in a way. And, and I think that it has a lot of like it's nimble and your recipe development is is, is fire. I, I, I fully mean that. Thank you. Molly, let's take a sandwich break because you mm. I think your sandwich journalism is is definitely high level. Yeah. You, you know a sandwich. Um, first question, what makes a great hoagie? Um, a great hoagie, a balance of fat and acid. Um, I actually think that a lot of the hoagies in the world, which look really great on Instagram, are super unbalanced. Yeah. Um, and there's like, you know, three inches of cured meats and then a quarter of an inch of like wilty lettuce. And it's just like, nah, you got to switch that ratio. There's got to be equal parts fatty things to crunchy acidic things and that's that's balance in the same way that you want balance in any dish yeah we should flip the ratios i think like that new york city mentality is like fun to think about but when you have like yeah three inches of turkey it's like yo dry and unlubricated so unlubricated and just like not a good experience yeah all right so let me ask you what makes an arty reuben i love this recipe you're like that was honestly a ridiculous title i couldn't think of anything better well you're just like sitting in your apartment in your house and we're just like yo i I was like whatever we'll just abbreviate it they'll love it um (laughs) it's not a very thoughtful title i feel like or like it doesn't really explain what it is well that's what i'm asking so an arty reuben is um a vegetarian Reuben that is based in artichokes instead of in meat. Um, and I do this thing often at home where I zhuzh up a jar. I love an artichoke, but I also, like, I'm not spending the time to turn artichokes every night of the <laughs> no week. No way. And canned artichokes are pretty mediocre unless you're getting, like, really expensive ones imported from Spain. And sometimes I am, and a lot of times I'm not. Um, and But there's, like, a way to really ramp up an artichoke, and that is to drain it and— crisp it up in a skillet, like sizzle it in olive oil and then toss it with smoked paprika and garlic or any kind of spices. And it just turns it into something way more than this like kind of tannic rubbery thing in a jar. Yeah. And so that recipe is sort of about learning how to maximize what you have and like look in your pantry and not settle for like mediocre artichokes just because they're there, but like have a few tricks up your sleeve that take them from good to great. I love that. So you're you're using water packed artichokes and you're adding it to the pan with with a lot of oil and yep. you're with and you said smoked paprika or sweet paprika, whatever you may decide. Yep, smoked paprika more to like simulate the concept of a smoked meat here but yeah you you put Love them in it. a pan with olive oil cut sides down and they get all crispy yeah man that's so the development of flavor wise what's the cheese choice or is it no is it no cheese it is swiss all right good it all is right. classic there is a classic so there is like a level of of standard when it comes to sandwiches yeah i mean i'm not going fully rogue i'm not a psycho you were a sandwich podcaster for a minute i know does that come back at all i feel like it should um i actually started talking about this recently like i'm ready to be back in the podcast world um i love a pod and i feel like there's so many further episodes and iterations the first round of it was just like all the classics um and it was really fun to then be able to incorporate some of those into the book yeah, it's a cool. I love I love your, your approach to sandwiches. Okay, Jesus, the salty coffee and peanut sliced cream. Man, that looks good. How, what's the what's the idea here? It's l- really good. Um, 
There was this coffee shop. So this is like this is a perfect example of a soundbite. There was this coffee <laughs> shop. Soundbite time. <laughs> um, across the street from one of the many apartments I lived in while we were renovating our house in L.A. in Chinatown. It was called Today Starts Here. It was Taiwanese. Um, and they had a salted coffee cold brew mm. that um, basically was like what Starbucks is now doing it was really smooth, beautiful cold brew with like a big dollop of sweet, salty whipped cream on top. And um, I fell in love with it because I obviously love salt. And like I do sort of not understand why drinks are never seasoned, but food is. And yeah. this is a seasoned drink. Um, and that basically turned itself into a dessert in yeah. my head. Um, and it's a bit of a mashup between that and this other coffee beverage that I like called um, Cloudy with a Chance of Peanuts, which is like a salty peanut coffee beverage. And so both of those were like swirling around in my head as these incredible coffee beverages that I was like, how do I distill this into a dessert? I love it. And that's what happened. It sounds great. I mean, it, it looks great. I, I need to need it. It's delicious. Wait, are you going to open a cafe one day? I feel like you're thinking through like sandwiches and, and drinks. Like I could. It's cafe like, fair. It's all here. Um, do you do it? I like I'll flip flop on this yeah. once a month probably. My biggest fear is opening up a restaurant, cafe, whatever it may be, and not having enough time to be there as much as I want, and then the quality suffering and being embarrassed and, like, not feeling proud of what's being put out. And I've just um, been—I've just experienced it so many times where, like, unless the chef is there or someone who, you know, like, truly deeply is looking out for your vision is there, it may not be up to your standards. And I don't— want to put that out in the world um fair i feel like everyone has an off day though yeah and that's right? fine you know what i mean but like not multiple off days right. those aren't fine those aren't um and so yeah i don't know it's just i think i'm a really particular person um and i would want to make sure everything was really particular and i feel like that wouldn't be kind of stressful for me so yeah. i haven't quite cracked the code on how to do it because you're in the wine business and that, that's similarly you needed to make sure that shit was like locked before yeah you and thankfully i have an amazing winemaker who takes care of flavor and everything but yeah like i run a lot of businesses right now and um yeah. i don't know if i have the bandwidth to yeah. also run a restaurant seems kind of insane it seems insane the margins are lower and maybe not the best use of your time but yeah so while incredible but like seriously what what's on the menu though i mean at the rest that you're going to maybe open. I mean, I, I, for a while, a year or so ago, was convinced that I needed to open up a restaurant called the House of Caesar. Yeah. And fun. Um, really it would just fun. be like a big, boisterous, Italian-American-ish, but not too specifically yeah. steakhouse. And like a guy would come around and do tableside Caesar salads. And I still feel like I need to do that. It, I mean, it would crush. Yeah. It just needs to be good, obviously, all yes. the time per your previous comment. So it, maybe that's like a down-the-line thing when I'm, like, burnt out on some of the other stuff yeah. and, like, want to focus. Speaking of being particular about products and businesses, your crate and barrel line, mm. man, I my, I was in the I bought it, but actually my wife bought me a couple pieces from it, mm. which um, I'm not, like, a big—I don't buy, like, a lot of shit from, like, direct-to-consumer or whatever, but I really liked— the croc, I love the croc, and, I, and the and the tr- and the trivet. Yeah, Those the trivets are, are so fun. So fun, um, and I, I love. Uh, obviously, you went with a really great heritage brand, American heritage brand. But yeah. what, how do you make sure that shit is not lame? Like I feel that is the concern. Oh yeah, um, I have a really talented husband who is a designer, and he designed it all with me. And basically, like he knows the aesthetic 
through and through. He has helped build this aesthetic for me. Like it's really been a joint collaborative process. And he designed many of the items just straight up on his computer. And like we would obviously tweak them together. And mm-hmm. um, I basically have a creative director built into my marriage. And yeah. he keeps <laughs> that shit in check. He so. create he creative directs your life in a way. Literally. It's great though. I mean you get you have a lot of love for him and it, and it's it's a part of your your charm of what you offer in this crowded space with so many people doing cool shit is like totally. you and your husband together, um, not just on video but on products. It's nice. Yeah, totally. Okay, I have to ask you about Los Angeles. You you dedicate the book to Los Angeles, the cool weirdos of Los Angeles, in a sense. Why do that? Why dedicate this book to Los Angeles? <laughs> um, I moved to Los Angeles right before I started on this book. And as I finished writing the manuscript and shot all the f- images, I just was overcome with a sense of appreciation and gratitude for the life that I had created seemingly very quickly in L.A. I was lucky enough to know um, a few people already in L.A. who then opened doors up to so many other people. And I've just met dozens and dozens and dozens of incredible people who have become a part of my community. Um, And they're all creative and weird and wacky. And I just had the most fun Mm -hmm. um, sort of starting a new life and um, in a new place that I had always wanted to live but had never really had the balls to move <laughs> and live in. Um, and it's just, yeah, I'm just endlessly grateful. I built my first house, or my husband did, um, mm-hmm. renovated our first house and created our space that's entirely our own that feels very L.A. And so I just feel like I owe it to the everything that the city represents to me. It's uh, well said about the city, and you're a kindred spirit, and it seems like you guys are a great match. Me and L.A.? Yeah, Yeah, man. I think so, too. It, it fits. It works. <laughs> and probably many people assume you're from there. Oh, yeah. My whole life, people just assume I'm from L.A. Really? So, so now, finally, I'm like, yes. <laughs> back in the day when you were in the Hudson Valley, people oh, were like, oh, my God. you're just visiting here. Growing up. Always, Fun. like, assumption, L.A. Okay, let's talk about a few spots in L.A. that you go to, you frequent, restaurants. I know you just mentioned the cafe in Chinatown, but maybe two other spots that you like. Um, let's see. I, we, I recently, or I've been frequently recently opened Queen Street. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's by the same folks that own Found Oyster, Mm -hmm. which was maybe the first restaurant I fell in love with when we moved to LA. Um, such a special vibe. And they now have Queen Street, which is like a more Southern Carolina style seafood restaurant. Such a vibe in there. Yeah. Um, so we go there frequently, um, my all-time favorite restaurant probably is um, Houston's in oh. Pasadena. Oh, the Pasadena location? Yeah, I mean, it's close to my—it's the best restaurant closest to my house. Well, there's no apology needed. I know, Houston's but it's like, is the best. It's a chain. Oh, I see, the chain thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true. There's, like, you know, you want to support local, but there's, like, local people working at chains. Like, yeah, no, totally. You're supporting people. Totally, and the consistency of product over there is unparalleled, really. Houston's was—BA had a Houston's connection. Yeah. I feel like money was maybe trading hands. Yeah, totally. It wasn't me, I swear. <laughs> you weren't—no, no, no. But I wasn't it's, involved. It's a good pick. Um, yeah. One more. Sorry, let's do one more. Um, one more. Okay. I mean, this is probably my favorite restaurant in L.A. is um, Antico, Antico Nuovo in, I guess, Larchmont, I think it's considered. Yeah. Like, incredible Italian restaurant, really rustic, simple, very less is more food, (laughs) um, but done so well. And the ingredients are just, like, beyond quality. They're using California to their full advantage. Yeah, totally in an Italian way. Molly, on This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire Fast and Furious taste check. Are you ready? Yes. The best breakfast? 
Ugh, a crunch wrap, which is my version of a crunch wrap, which has really nothing to do with the Taco Bell version, but is a griddled flour tortilla with scrambled eggs, dill pickles, dill, sour cream, and sriracha crisped up in a skillet. Yo, it's Molly, I'm taking so a br- I'm taking a breath. <laughs> the crossover of dill pickle and a flour tortilla is really blowing my mind. Yeah, it's bonkers. You have to try it though. And it's it's served warm, obviously. Yeah, crispy. Warm and- pickles are underrated. Agree. Yeah, there's they're always tune like them out. Yeah, tuna milk, obviously. They're like ice cold in many cases. Eh. The best dessert. Carrot cake. Now, let me ask you about that. Uh, more cake or more frosting? Um, more cake. The frosting is too rich. Like, I can't with the reverse yeah. ratio there. But it's like a very necessary—it's the dressing. It's the dressing Nut the choice, top. and are you doing raisins? Yes to raisins, yes to walnuts. Okay, so it's kind of a classic. It's a classic. Love this, Molly. Your favorite American fast food chain? Um, Raising Cane's. Oh. Which I only discovered actually in the last few years. My manager's obsessed with it. It's a chicken tender yeah. spot um, with like this incredible like special sauce. And it's just the tenderest tender in the world. So that's my question because obviously tenders are like literally everywhere. Every, you know, hotel, restaurant, every airport. Yeah. Literally every fast food chain. But Raising Kings has lines. Yeah. What's I it, mean, why is it so good? I think they're like whatever brine they're doing oh, yeah. is setting them apart. So they're, the, it is the meat in the inside the tender is so plump and juicy like it's being pumped with brine um it's just a superior tender it's good uh we just opened one in new york there's oh, one really? down yeah down in near aster oh place. amazing yeah it's pretty great it's pretty i haven't been yet all right uh your favorite cookbook of all time <gasps> yeah we're um, going there oh my god i mean i don't yeah sure this is i think a good answer because it's the one that i've referenced the most in my lifetime is the flavor bible do you oh, know that book? Of course I do. It's a great book. It was like the first book I nerded out on yeah. when I started to get into cooking and was like, what flavors can I put together? Like, what goes with endive? And yeah. like, would just consult it and then mess around. I consult it less now because I feel like I have an innate understanding of flavor now, but it really guided the way for me. Yeah, it's like, it's like definitely has like some dated approaches, but mostly it's just like classic pairings that you just don't think about. It's incredible. Like passion fruit and chocolate. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, you can you can search literally any ingredient in it and like an encyclopedia, it will list out other ingredients that go well with it. Your favorite recent cookbook discovery? Oh my God, I, I, I look through so many cookbooks. You know, I've been really um, inspired by Violet Cakes. You know, Claire Patak's- yeah. um, London. Yeah, her London-based- um, baking book i have gotten really into baking lately which mm. probably will show up more in whatever the next book is that i do i don't know what it is but something in me has shifted and i've become um really drawn to the sort of like precision of like it either works or it doesn't in baking it's so much patience though it is and but like i feel like there's huge payoff and reward because of the patience like the forcing you to yeah. wait and the crossing of your fingers and then the like success at the end of yeah. the road is like that's a huge really valuable feeling was there a, a baked item that really got you super excited recently it's like a like a project um i just m- days ago developed a pumpkin bread and I 
initially developed, I developed my first ever pumpkin bread while working at Bon Appetit and it like went nuts. And mm-hmm. people were like, this is the pumpkin bread of all time. <laughs> and so like I've been very quiet on the pumpkin bread conversation since then because I'm like, how do I talk? You like had a mic drop pumpkin yeah, bread Yeah, like I'm like, then. I can't do two. That'd be weird. And like that one already exists. So why another? But then like it's been four or five years since that recipe came out and I was like, it's time for another pumpkin bread. Um and so I just recently developed one a couple of weeks ago, which will come out soon in my recipe club. And it's basically like an upside down pumpkin bread cake. So it's baked in a loaf pan mm. and there's like shingles of kabocha squash that get caramelized underneath. So they're kind of like um, dressed in this like squash caramel. Pretty. It's a pretty yeah. dish. And then you overturn you it. it. Whereas like most loaf cakes, you just plop right out. You flip it out and it's like shiny and golden and like flat layers of kabocha adorn the top of it. It's pretty cool. Sounds cool. This might be my Midwestern upbringing, but I always go to chocolate with pumpkin cake. Is that just like not? I don't like chocolate. Yeah. So like not for the, me. The end with chocolate. Yeah. I just, I can't. Not even it. chocolate mousse? No, I, no, no, absolutely. What? I can't with that stuff. It'd be just because it's like baby food for adults? No, just because it tastes like chocolate and I don't like the way it tastes. <laughs> You've never liked chocolate, so s'mores never hit for you. No, s'mores don't. I eat them without the chocolate, which is so fucking lame. Um, it's not. It's actually a good choice. What about, what, one more, like. I will eat Oreos and I will eat Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh, thank, that was my next one, Reese's. But that's like mostly sugar and peanut butter. But of yeah, course. that's how I get my chocolate. Everyone knows, yeah, you got, you got your vitamin C. Uh, I feel like no chocolate shakes ever. Hell no. All right, I love this. Nightmare. Cookies and cream, yeah. Yeah, def. All right, so New York City restaurant, your favorite one, classic edition. The classic, classic, classic. Oh, um, Balthazar. Tower, seafood tower, steak poivre, what are you doing? Yes, seafood tower, steak poivre, always a green salad and extra crispy fries. Dope. Favorite LA restaurant, classic edition? Um... You know, I feel like not that many people know about this place, but the Smokehouse in Burbank is like a really old school steakhouse that I have become obsessed with. There's live music there on Mm. stage on Friday and Saturday nights. It's just like a boisterous step back in time. Burbank just driving down downtown Burbank is like it's like leave it to beaver. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. It's got like this iconic big sign up above um, the valet your car. Like it's the whole experience. Smokehouse. I've never been. I gotta go. Yeah, you gotta check it out. A um, couple more. A chef you would like to work under and study under and learn under? Um, Chad Colby from Antico, yeah. I think, is a genius. And um, I actually have, like, talked about this in the past. Like, should I stodge under him? Like, I love everything that comes out of his kitchen. I think he has a beautiful mind. Um, so probably him. Good call. Good good call to get folks up there. I Wh- feel like where? To the restaurant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's maybe not like the restaurant everyone goes yeah, to. Yeah, but like it's maybe the best. Yeah, good call. A couple more. Your favorite vegetable? <gasps> oh, my God. This is such a random answer because I've also never developed a recipe ever with this ingredient. A sunchoke. Wait a sec. Like a Jerusalem You've never artichoke. Cho- you never done a choke? No, because I'm like they're so inaccessible. Like, you can't find them at most grocery stores, and even so, it's, like, a pretty short season. Nobody knows what they are. Everybody thinks it's ginger. Like, it's, it's just a nightmare. Nutty. People will start, like, roasting ginger accidentally. <laughs> like, so I've never, I've never. But, and like, when you, I see them, I'm all over it. They're really cool looking. If you if you serve them raw or, un, or half cooked, there's, like, repercussions. They're bad for you. Yeah. You get a little gassy. Yeah, they're bad for you. you but when you, like, if you blanch them and then roast them or confit them, yeah. they're so delicious. This is amazing. So that's like a short season, though, in California, right? You yeah, can... I don't even know if I've ever seen them, like, in the few years I've been there. 
It's game on. Yeah. Chokes happening. Last one, favorite sandwich. Oh, a tuna fish sandwich. A cold tuna sandwich. Cold. Yeah. Bless you. I mean, I love a hoagie, but it's not that I want it every day. And I pretty much every day would eat a cold tuna sandwich. <laughs> Molly, it's been such fun catching up with you. Thanks a lot for doing Thank this. Thank you for stuff. having me. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.